Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I am Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the psych topic of body dysmorphia and how it's related to trauma. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We have a couple of announcements at the top that are getting closer and closer by the day. Weird how that happens. (laughs) That's just how a calendar works, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So we have on May 20th, our live show. We're just one month out from our first live show ever that we have really helped put on like a major, major live podcast in partnership with Hollywood Paranormal and LA Meekly. We're calling it Macabre Mansions and Haunted History. So that should give you a little hint as to what our topic is going to be, but we're not going to tell you. You have to show up and be there to find out. But we're going to be surrounded by amazing historic homes because our venue is the very cool Heritage Square Museum. And not only do you get the live podcast show, but you get the opportunity to have a spooky tour of one of the homes afterwards. So we can't wait for that. And then of course, CrimeCon UK is coming up very quickly. We're also doing a meetup. So be sure to, you know, I'm sure those of you that are going already have your arrangements done, but please RSVP for the meetup that we're hosting with Generation Y. That's going to be on Friday the 9th before to kick off the weekend. And it's a super cool venue at Bike Shed London. And you can RSVP, get tickets for the live show here in LA, both on Eventbrite. There's a link on our website and in our show notes, or you can just go on Eventbrite and search for it. And that's where you get all the goodness. So do it now. Cause I don't know where we're going to be after this. We're going to be tired puppies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> This might well, be it for a while. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I think we're going to have to take a break on events because we've really been generating a lot of stuff. But let's look at last episode 135. We looked back in time to the 1930s Los Angeles, once again, to highlight an actual good guy from this area, Mr. Clifford Clinton, a businessman, restaurateur, and public servant. And because he was brave enough to hold the city accountable, there were attempts on his life and those associated with him. And we get into all the gritty details. It's a really cool story. And And Clifford Clinton's mark is still all over downtown Los Angeles, which is very cool. Yes. And we had really great feedback. People were like, it was so nice to hear kind of a, the majority of the story is very positive, I guess. Ah. Yeah. Just covering a good guy for once. But so this week, folks, we are going to get into a phenomenon, a diagnosis that in and of itself, just like most mental health disorders, of course, does not scream crime or violence, but we're going to talk about body disorders dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphia. And when we started thinking about this topic, I was like, Scott, I don't know if we can find a crime associated with this. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we can find something. And we certainly do. So let's start off by talking about this disorder though. As many as 10 million people in the United States have some form of body dysmorphia, AKA body dysmorphic disorder. BDD is probably an acronym we're going to be using a lot today, but body dysmorphic disorder is a mental health condition and it's closely associated with both anxiety disorders, such as obsessive compulsive disorder and with eating disorders. And it involves an experience in which you can't stop thinking about one or more perceived defects or flaws in your appearance. And we're, I'm going to use the term flaw a lot today. It's definitely in air quotes because that flaw to that person is minor 
or can't even be seen by other people. So we have this, this piece where it might not even be based in reality for the person who's experiencing this. And additionally, the person may feel so embarrassed, ashamed, and anxious that they might avoid social situations altogether because of this. When someone has BDD, they intensely focus on their appearance, on their body image, repeatedly checking in the mirror, grooming, seeking reassurance. Sometimes this takes up hours a day for them, which really kind of tracks with similar obsessive disorders that we've talked about before. However, as is the caveat with many disorders, this person's perceived flaw and the repetitive behaviors go on to really cause them significant distress and impacts their abilities to function in daily life. So again, that's kind of the, the marker we always talk about is that it has to be distressful for the person in order for it to be something that can really be diagnosed. So that is what we're going to be working with today. Right. And the description that we've already touched on disorders that may be sensitive. To, so BDD and its descriptions have already been touched on within some disorders that may be sensitive to individuals. But we're also going to be talking about self-harm and a murder involving gun violence in this particular episode. So let's talk about how this starts to pop up for folks and what it looks like for them on a daily basis. And again, we're going to be talking about BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, which has a wide spectrum of how it affects people, some on a level of minor annoyance to very, very severe pathology. So the DSM-5 indicates the onset of BDD can be as young as 12 to 13 years old, and the American Psychiatric Association reporting that an average onset is 16 to 17 years old. So as far as prevalence goes, BDD affects 1.7 to 2.9 of the general population. So that is really just about one in 50 people. The incidence of body dysmorphic disorder in the United States is 2.5 percent of the male population, which is an increase over past years, and 2.2 percent in females. Comparatively, there's a 1 percent prevalence in the population of the UK. Internationally, it works out to anywhere between 1.9 and 3.3 of the population. So fairly consistent around the world. And as you can imagine, the prevalence in dermatology settings is way higher, 9 to 12 percent. So really significantly higher in that area. And we're going to be touching on a criminal case in that particular arena later. But bottom line, BDD is about as common as or maybe a little bit more common than obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD, and certainly more common than disorders such as anorexia nervosa and schizophrenia. And as we mentioned at the top, the hallmark trait is being extremely preoccupied with a perceived flaw in appearance. Again, that maybe others can't see or others really have a consensus that it's very minor. And this can include the strong belief for that person that they have a defect in their appearance that makes them ugly or deformed. And it can include the belief that others take special notice of their appearance in a negative way or mock them. So not only is it sort of just them obsessing and having these obsessive thoughts over it, but again, it's we're starting to see how it's impacting maybe their social interactions if they think that other people are really focused on it as well. Yeah. And I think that you drew some really good comparisons there in your research when we when we kind of single out anorexia and other eating related disorders mm -hmm. 
from body dysmorphic disorder, even though there can be an overlap. Body dysmorphia can trigger anorexia, but also right. anorexia can exist without not without necessarily being a presentation of body dysmorphic disorder. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting stuff. And the excessive focus is usually over one or more body parts of the body and the bodily feature that is focused on may actually change over time. The most common features that people tend to fixate on include the face, such as their nose, complexion, wrinkles, acne, or other blemishes or acne scars, hair, such as appearance, thinning, baldness, whether or not it matches sort of the bouncing and behaving commercials that show perfect hair, right. skin and vein appearance. That's a really big one for some people. Breast size is one that we'll be talking about in our example and is just a very, an ongoing controversial issue within body dysmorphic disorder. It seems like to me in a lot of the research, what you hear about most is breast size and nose size, because I think that's yeah. where the ma majority of the surgeries go. But there's also muscle size and tone. There are issues focused on male and female genitalia, and then a preoccupation with bodybuilding, where bodybuilders just cannot get an accurate understanding of their size. They keep thinking that they're too small, they're not muscular enough. And that has a specific subcategory name of muscle dysmorphia, or in the gym, it's known as bigorexia. And that occurs almost exclusively in males. Yes. But aside from the cognitive preoccupation we're seeing here, the behaviors that these individuals engage in are actions aimed at fixing or hiding the perceived flaw. And it's difficult to resist or control that urge, such as frequently checking the mirror, grooming, skin picking in some cases. And there's also attempts to hide perceived flaws with styling and makeup or clothes. And this preoccupation with appearance and the resulting excessive thoughts, and of course, these repetitive behaviors that I just mentioned, can be unwanted, difficult to control, and so time-consuming that they're taking away from other areas of functioning. So if you can imagine, someone might be consistently late for work or for school because they're at home obsessing over what they're wearing or how to hide their flaw. So yeah, that goes back to major distress in their life and at that point can become something that's pathological. Additional symptoms can include constantly comparing your appearance with others, frequently seeking reassurance about your appearance from others, having perfectionist tendencies and personality, as well as seeking cosmetic procedures with very little satisfaction afterwards. And then, as I previously mentioned, just really social isolation and not wanting to be around other people. So when it comes to the person's awareness of the disorder within themselves, there's a wide spectrum from a variety in insight and an individual may recognize that their beliefs about their perceived flaws might be excessive or they, they might realize that they're not true or they can think that they probably are true or that they can be absolutely convinced that they are true. The more convinced they are of their beliefs, the more distress and disruption that they may experience. So again, it's on that Likert scale of mm -hmm. if it's a minor annoyance to them, it may not impact their day-to-day -day life very much, but the more focus that they have on it, the more fixation they have on those these perceived flaws, the more it's going to affect their emotional state throughout the day. Their behavior doesn't just mean someone's trying to hide their flaw. They may also be seeking out numerous cosmetic procedures to try and fix the problem. Afterwards, they can feel temporary satisfaction or at least what we would call a reduction in their overall distress, but often their anxiety returns and then they have to resume searching for other ways to fix the perceived flaw, which they then believe remains despite surgery or the 
they focus now on a new flaw. Actually, more people with BDD seek out surgery rather than mental health support or treatment. And this is one of the times when you can find people with really, I think this is particularly interesting in the area of nose jobs out here in Southern California, because uh-huh. in older people, you can see those that really got carried away with nose jobs and there's almost nothing left there. There's just this yeah. really thin, sharp, almost like a knife blade of a nose that doesn't suit their face at all. And right. it, that's fascinating to me because I think you get to a point sometimes where doctors will go, I'm not going to give you any more surgery, which is yeah. the, the not going to be able to breathe. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, but and we I think want- that these descriptions you just gave, certainly, I hope it's clear to folks why this fits more closely with an anxiety disorder or more closely to OCD than any of the eating disorders, because right. obviously it's not always about weight, which is where the kind of food intake management comes from, but these obsessive thoughts that are really not based in reality and then resulting in these behaviors. The way I thought of, reason I thought of it when you just read that last portion was like with the surgeries, there's a little bit of relief, but then it just comes right back. So it's very sad. I mean, I can imagine it being very torturous. Yeah. Plus anytime you do some sort of procedure on your body that requires you going under anesthesia, that's, that's a big surgery. Yeah. And you'll read accounts of people who just do procedure after procedure. It is interesting that there are certain factors that seem to increase the risk of developing BDD. And research has shown us that this can include having blood relatives with body dysmorphic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. So again, you're pulling that link there between anxiety and BDD. Also negative life experiences such as childhood teasing, neglect or abuse, already possessing certain personality traits such as overt perfectionism, societal pressure or expectations of beauty, which has increasingly Mm. come a big factor in today's world. And then also having another mental health condition such as anxiety or depression. Yeah. And as with many other mental health disorders, there's no one clear cut root cause and BDD may result from a combination of issues such as, like you mentioned, a family history of the disorder, really impactful negative experiences about body or self-image and or abnormal brain function or abnormal levels of brain chemicals, typically serotonin. So there's this mishmash of biological bases as well as experience. However, there is another link that we as the psych community have just come to really understand a lot more in the past decade or or so with a growing body of research suggesting that trauma is strongly associated with the development of BDD. So pretty big landmark study in 2006 examined adults diagnosed with BDD and found that the prevalence of childhood maltreatment made up 75% of respondents who had experienced some form of abuse as a child. Any guesses, Dr. Scott, as to the type of child abuse that made them the most vulnerable? to BDD? I don't know. Sexual abuse? Am I correct? No, it was actually emotional abuse. So although other Hmm. forms of abuse like sexual and physical were also identified, but emotional abuse had the highest percentage. So I'm wondering if like, you know, that's sort of these old messages about body image that's happening from parents, perhaps a perfectionism type of comments that then get trickled down. But yeah, 
Yeah, it's actually emotional abuse and neglect. So yeah, definitely a lot of other research out there. There's a particular researcher, Catherine Phillips, I think I refer to her later, but she's done a lot of research in the area looking at this link with trauma. Fascinating. So when you pulled more research that I was able to read through, what was indicated there is that there are many different ways that childhood abuse can impact the child in the moment and then later on in life as they continue to individuate and develop well into adulthood. And BDD is often strongly tied with other forms of mental illness, which we call comorbidity, as we said before, especially anxiety and eating disorders. But we can also see low self-esteem, which totally tracks, right? Mm -hmm. Social isolation, major depression or other mood disorders, suicidal thoughts or behavior, obsessive compulsive disorder, substance misuse, and how health problems from behavior such as skin picking. So the theoretical explanation is that the fixation on the perceived physical flaw is an unconscious effort to distract, deny, and deflect from the true source of that pain, which is the unresolved trauma. So you put that together with today's beauty-obsessed culture, and it's very easy to see how these cognitive deflections could work for a while, sort of like putting a, a physical Band-Aid on a virtual problem. It's just yeah. not its not going to be the answer to that problem. But the obsession does little to heal the wounds of the past in the long run. So this leads to a natural transition to treatment options. But we also want to note that suicidal ideations and behavior are common with body dysmorphic disorder. Catherine Phillips, as you were saying earlier, covers this in her book, BDD, Advances in Research and Clinical Practice, and also some articles of hers that we have pulled. So please check our show notes out if you're interested. Yeah, definitely evidence-based with looking at suicidal ideations being unfortunately all too common here. So yes, on, on the note of treatment, when BDD emerges as this unhealthy coping mechanism for trying to deal with unresolved trauma, addressing the body issues alone is not going to be sufficient. But at the very least, those who are contending with BDD need to learn new ways of thinking about body image and simultaneously embrace a healthier image of what physical beauty is. And there are two empirically based treatments recommended for treatment of BDD, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and cognitive behavioral therapy. Several studies over the years have found that CBT successfully reduces BDD severity and the related symptoms such as depression. So these two together are a very good route to go. I remember a really great BBC news segment years ago of a young man in sort of like not living in a particularly large town, large city in England, but he was a ginger or a redhead. And while we don't really have a lot of sort of negative connotations here in the U.S. with uh -huh. redheads. In the U.K., it's a very big deal. It's like, oh, no kidding. You no, know, they're they're really reviled. It's it has probably has something to do historically. There's a lot of different theories about why. But Catherine Tate, the comedian, has a, a running skit that she did on her show about gingers trying to like the underground ginger railroad trying to get away oh from persecution. <laughs> but they wow. showed the treatment protocol for this teenager who was really just obsessed with his skin and his freckles. So what they did with this young man was exposure therapy where they took makeup, mixed it in red food coloring and actually made really 
significant blotches on his face. And he right. and his friends had to go through an entire day of going to shops, going to a movie, going out to eat, and him dealing with what it was actually like for someone to react and stare at him. Ah, so that he could yeah. compare the difference. So then he would realize like, like you were saying that symptom earlier of that fixation of people are looking at me. He was right. able to realize like, oh, people are not looking at me unless I have all this goop on my face. Yeah. It's very interesting and good for him. It looked like mm -hmm. the treatment was successful at that time, but that was a very brave kid. And he also had wonderful friends around him, like these, you know, 14 and 15 year old boys that were struggling to understand why yeah. this was such a big deal for their Aww. friend, you know, for them to be so supportive was pretty cool. So going back to those CBT models for BDD, they incorporate biological psychological and sociocultural factors in the development and maintenance of the disorder. And this model focuses on the problematic issues that individuals with BDD selectively focus on, which are minor aspects of appearance as opposed to seeing the big picture or the thoughts that actually lead to the anxiety and then to the obsessive actions. So that's really interesting. It's saying that there's a breakdown in how maybe people have tried to approach this treatment wise in the past, and mm -hmm. they've now carved this new path of no, you have to focus on the big picture issues rather than just putting a bandaid on it. The other cognitive distortion that needs to be untwisted is overestimating the meaning and importance of these perceived physical imperfections. For example, when walking into a public space, a patient with BDD who has concerns about her ears might think everyone I walk by is staring at my big Dumbo ears, or they may misinterpret minor flaws as major personal flaws. If my nose is crooked, I'm unlovable. So CBT is very effective with these types of self-defeating interpretations that foster negative feelings like anxiety, shame, and sadness. And when the thoughts are reframed or changed, then they will ideally no longer feel the need to neutralize these bad feelings with rituals of avoidance. So then you take that, a really great evidence-based treatment, and you pair it with SSRIs, you're going to see the best results. That's one of the things that's a huge pet peeve for me is people with depression or anxiety and they go to just their general practitioner and get a prescription yeah. for the medication, but then don't go do talk therapy or don't do an evidence-based practice to address the underlying foundations of whatever their disorder is. So these medications are antidepressants, but unlike non-SSRI antidepressants, they also help reduce obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors, which are the hallmarks of BDD. They're effective for treating BDD, major depressive disorder, most anxiety disorders, including OCD and other conditions. And the examples that are the most common that you've probably heard of are Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, and Celexa, although there's many more. There are no medications currently that have FDA approval for specifically treating BDD. However, research and clinical experience is suggesting that these medications are safe and effective for a majority of the people with BDD. And as with other extreme cases of anxiety disorders, BDD symptoms can be so severe that someone could require psychiatric hospitalization. And this is generally recommended if the person isn't able to keep up with their day-to-day -day responsibilities or when in immediate danger of self-harm. So, and when we say day-to-day -day responsibilities, I'm talking about someone that's so severely impacted by the disorder that they literally can't leave their home. They can't yeah. get out of bed. They can't take care of themselves, like providing themselves with nutrition. Yes. 
So here in California and other places, we call that gravely disabled. You go back to our Britney Spears episode, Dr. Scott nicely lays out all of the reasons people are hospitalized. And that's one of those categories that is, I guess, less common than suicidal ideation or threatening to harm others. But if you can't take care of yourself, then someone has to take over at some point. So I do have some recommendations that I just wanted to go over. This is from the Mayo Clinic, and I'm going to read pretty verbatim from what they had to say. And they advocate that, of course, this warrants treatment, BDD warrants treatment from a mental health professional. But the things people can do at home to kind of build their treatment plan or prep themselves to be as successful as possible are the following. So the first thing, I love that they put this first because it's learn about your disorder. And Scott, you and I know how much whenever you work with someone no matter what their issue or possible diagnosis is to empower them with the information about what's going on for them. I mean, sometimes that is just magic and unlocks a lot. That can address 20% (laughs) right off the gate. Yeah, exactly. So the education on BDD really empowers people, motivates them to stick to their plans because now there's a label for it. There's a name for it. Okay, people are studying this. People know how to help me. I'm not the only one. Let's go. They also say, stick to your treatment plan. Don't skip therapy sessions. Even if you don't feel like going, even if you're feeling well, continue to take your medications because we know, again, this is pretty generalized, but if you stop, symptoms could come back and you can also experience withdrawal-like symptoms from stopping a medication too early. So until you and your therapist decide, because I truly believe people shouldn't be in therapy forever. Really, you know, I'm here to support them as long as they need me, but I also want it to be their job to make me obsolete in the sense that they are doing the work, they're learning the skills. And then, you know, as you and your mental health professional get to sort of agree upon when treatments finished rather than just like medication, you know, rather than you deciding on yourself on that yourself, you discuss it with your, your medical or mental health professional. They also advise pay attention to warning signs, Again, work with your healthcare provider to learn what your triggers are, what your symptoms are, so you can recognize those when you're at home and making a plan so you know what to do if those symptoms return. Learn strategies, of course, at home, routinely practice the skills that you learn during therapy because then they become these stronger habits. They also advise with BDD to avoid drugs and alcohol, mostly because this can interact with medications. It's going to be case by case, of course, but with some disorders, depending on what the trigger is, depending what the anxiety is about and the obsessive thoughts, it can worsen symptoms. And then last but not least, getting active. You know, when you're looking at depression and anxiety being you know, one of those comorbid disorders along with something, we know how important physical activity is and how the science backs up the fact that it is as successful as taking SSRIs is just to have, what is it, at least four times a week being pretty active, then you start to see those really comparable results. If excessive exercise is a problem to fix the flaw, then that needs to be monitored by your Right. Your health professional. Right. But I mean, the well, the research on HIT, which is high intensity training, cardio can be super, super effective doing 30 to 40 minutes of super strenuous, then low strenuous, then super strenuous back and forth is really successful in releasing all those feel good chemicals into your system. Yes. So, you know, not everybody can do that. Not everybody's cut out to do that, but you can do something being active in some way is going to be really helpful and not just in those chemicals. You get a 
lot of other benefits in your body as well by engaging in that kind of self-care. But hey, let's move on or let's build on this foundation from what we talked about. We've given you all the, the stats. We've given you all the, the diagnostic criteria. stuff, the overlap, yeah. the criteria, all that. We would really be remiss if we didn't take a step back and look at the combination of ongoing ideals in beauty within the current world that are kind of out of control with the yeah. advent or the presentation of face filters that mm -hmm. really are just prevalent in all use of social media. It used to be just one or two platforms that have these options and now everybody's got one. Yep. So appearance altering filters, commonly known as beauty filters, are photo editing tools that utilize artificial intelligence and computer vision to modify facial features. I don't think there's anyone listening to this show <laughs> that doesn't know what we're talking about because it's so common, right? These yeah. filters are designed to enhance your appearance by making subtle or drastic changes to facial structure. For instance, the TikTok skinny filter can make a face appear slimmer while Instagram's perfect face filter allegedly adjusts facial features based on an ideal ratio. So, mm. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me how, because in using the Cardassians as an example, like yep. there are times they'll have filters on where they basically just have a, a triangle for a chin. Like it's just a completely pointed, like, yes. what are you doing with that? With it's their nice nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is kind of wild. So this morning, my daughter and I went on a walk. She's 11 and I can never get her to go on a walk with me, by the way. So this was like a miracle. Just that this happened anyway. But I always, of course, I love it because we just talk the whole time. And today, like I'm talking a handful of hours ago. She's like, mom, what's body dysmorphia? <laughs> I'm like, funny, you wow. should ask because I have it all in my brain ready to go for later. <laughs> but we talked about it and I, I said, why do you ask? And she said, oh, I saw TikTok and a girl was talking about her experience with it. And so then we started talking about filters and I said, well, what do you think about filters? And she said, well, I think they're fun you know, to play around with and, and stuff like that. But they, they don't make me feel bad about myself or anything like that. And she goes, and everybody has a different standard of beauty anyway, as they should. <laughs> I was like, you know, anyone with a child this age or a little younger, or a little older is probably having this same experience, but you worry about the exposure and especially with adolescent, you know, anxiety through the roof these days and suicidal ideation and all that stuff is so horrible right now. But I found myself in a moment of gratitude where she was on a platform where she has these filters to play around with, but also she's being educated. At least she's looking at the right stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of bad stuff as well. And I have... I have software on all of her devices that I get alerted to most of it, but, but you know, that she's listening to people talk about beauty standards and what it should be, what it shouldn't be. And it's a double-edged sword for sure, but she sounded pretty informed when we had our conversation. So I'm glad well, it went that way. Yeah. And I love the fact that she used the word play. I'm playing yeah. with it yeah. as opposed to like another more concerning description of like, I've got to use it to change how I look because it's so important or this or that. She's like, oh, it's fun to play with. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there are really great voices out on social media. I mean, there's also some really horrible voices out there. Well, yeah. But I do love the ones that are saying that are pushing back against the ultra uber filtered photos. And they're saying, this is what I look like. And I think I'm pretty. Or there's even like an ugly movement, which I think is really yeah. fascinating. And it's people who they describe themselves as ugly and they're fine with it. And I kind of yeah. like, I love that. I love that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fascinating we, stuff. We, it is. And it, it ended up into a good conversation about, you know, 
so many different bodies. And what if we all looked the same and how the Kardashians have kind of created a certain look that really isn't what people look like. <laughs> I wish right. I well, should have found this quote that Tim Gunn said about the Kardashians. I can't remember what it is, but it's something about like, what was like, what is happening? People don't look like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, it's a beauty standard that may rapidly change in oh, totally. another two years. I mean, oh, I'm sure you, know, you think of like the flapper movement in the twenties, which was like super thin, no chest, like everything was mm -hmm. flat, the page boy haircut, super, super thin, which was sort of pushing back against like the corseted, you know, Thanks. overly dramatic outlines. It's like, well, that happened just in less than a decade. Look what, oh yeah, you know, so you're going to surgically alter yourself for something that could be just, you know, flavor of the month. It's fascinating yeah. to me. So these filters are often referred to as augmented reality talking about body augmentation and are very yeah. popular on social media platforms per Snapchat. Over 90% of young people in the US, France, and the UK use AR products on the app. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, reports that more than 600 million people have used an AR effect on their platforms. I mean, I can't imagine someone who really hasn't. I mean, just to play around with it, really. Yeah. Whether it's like butterflies flying over your head or, you know, getting a, a different shaped face. But or making your eyes green, which is cool. That was oh, one of the yeah. first things that I was like, is like change my eye color. Like the science behind this is fascinating. It is. It really, really is. And there's some that are horrible and there's some that are just done so well. But the yeah. collision of comparison syndrome, body dysmorphia and social media has created, yes, a very much a perfect storm contributing to increases in mm. dysmorphia and social media comparison and filters on social media cause people to strive for these very unrealistic standards of beauty, which can have detrimental impacts on their mental health, especially at particular times of brain development for kiddos. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You have a, of course, I'm biased because I think you have an amazing, amazing daughter. But I also know that you and your husband are really amazing parents. And how interesting, you know, you're she's at that age where you would love to have her spend more time, but she's also individuating and doing yeah. what she wants to do. And she's able to do it. And today she chose to go on a walk with you and share with you what she's been thinking about, which is super mm -hmm. cool. You know, I love that, that she's processing this information and kind of fitting it into who she's going to be as she, Same. you know, becomes. So good work, mom. Thanks. <laughs> Try my best. <laughs> so young adults who frequently use filters on social media are more likely to experience dissatisfaction with their actual face and body, comparing not only their appearance to perfect images of celebrities and peers, but also they judge themselves against their own filtered selfies. Yep. So this constant comparison can wreak havoc on body image and self-esteem, leading to the phenomenon known as filter dysmorphia or Snapchat dysmorphia. And according to a study conducted by the Dove Self-Esteem Project in 2020, a staggering 80 percent of girls have resorted to downloading filters or using apps to alter their appearance in photos by the age of 13. Yes. Some commenters, as well as mental health professionals, assert that these filters create unrealistic beauty standards on top of what's already out there. You know, in the 90s and 2000s, it was magazines. And this leads to these feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem. Additionally, the use of these filters can perpetuate harmful stereotypes and reinforce social beauty norms that are just unachievable. So as the incidence of use continues to grow, it opened up an ever-widening 
emerging field to be studied, of course. And in 2021, a group of researchers from City University of London conducted a study to investigate the detrimental effects of filters on mental health. So that study involved 175 young women and non-binary individuals that were aged between 18 and 30, with the majority being 20 and 21 years old. And unfortunately, the results were pretty alarming with 90% of the participants admitting to using filters or editing their photos. The study also revealed that the most commonly used filters or edits, which included skin tone correction, skin brightening, teeth whitening, skin bronzing, and weight reduction. Participants also use filters to alter their facial features, such as reshaping their jaw or nose, making their lips appear fuller and enlarging their eyes. So basically turning yourself <laughs> into an anime cat. That's basically <laughs> yes, it. Yes, or a brat um, stall. Exactly. God. The study <laughs> found that 94% of the participants felt pressured to conform to a certain appearance with more than half of them experiencing intense pressure, but they could also be imagining that that societal pressure is there as well. Additionally, 70% felt the need to present a perfect life on social media, which we call social curation. It's like choosing to only show like the best and brightest of your day-to-day -day life, while 86% admitted that their online persona did not reflect their real life self at all. The uh -oh. researchers concluded, yeah, isn't that surprising? I'm always taken back to this example of a friend of mine that had a roommate and she had a banged up convertible Mercedes that was, you know, decades old and it had two or three good angles, but you didn't see the, the <laughs> from those angles, you didn't see the bang up. So uh -huh. from her online life, you would have thought that she was absolutely wealthy and living in Beverly Hills. And she wasn't, she was living, sharing a two bedroom apartment among four people sleeping on an air mattress, you oh know, with just a closet full of clothes and, and basically, you know, going from job to job, but it was so important to curate that image that, you know, she was living this Wow. really, really extravagant lifestyle. It's very interesting because the researchers in that study that I was referring to concluded that young women found the standards of beauty portrayed on social media to be unattainable and toxic, leading to feelings of unhappiness and inadequacy. Furthermore, individuals with low self-esteem and poor body image were more likely to use filters, thereby reinforcing their already negative beliefs about their appearance. And then you have the COVID lockdown, which presented a unique opportunity for... Zoom, <laughs> what we're right. using right now, not sponsored, the video chat platform. And that opportunity quickly turned into windfall due to their ability to expand and keep up with the need of the public. And this unexpected surge in usage had an interesting ripple effect on another industry, plastic surgery. Hmm. So yeah, between January, 2020 and mid-March, Zoom usage skyrocketed. 67%. I'm surprised at th that low, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> As non-essential businesses and schools close their doors for what was expected to be a two-week pause, COVID brought a new normal to the entire world. I mean, completely changed the way that I did yeah. work. I never saw patients virtually until this. And then you have lengthy stay-at-home orders that were issued. Daily routines were completely upended and the fear of infection was looming. Millions of people turned to screen time as an alternative, a safe alternative to these in-person interactions that we couldn't get anymore. So it wasn't just a part of your business. It was how you were socializing. And this shift forced many people previously not used to seeing themselves on camera 
to confront their reflections or a slightly distorted version of them for some days. This is so funny. I've never really talked about this with someone about just the experience of going on Zoom and having to look at yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's It's been a big thing. And uh, there's also another phenomenon related to this, which is called a true mirror effect. So a lot of people don't realize that you, hmm. you know, I mean, it's interesting because you're, I, if, if there is a term for the type of thing that I have, I don't know if that's a type of body dysmorphic disorder, but you know, I have always had good mirrors and good lighting, or maybe it's just the psychological effect of like, I get used to seeing this every day and I know yeah. how to hold my face at an angle that's acceptable to me. And I, you know, and I've also, I'm a, I'm a guy. So I have that built-in ego protection that most guys have. Totally. And I'll go like, yeah, I'm looking pretty good. You know, and I walk out and then I'll see a picture taken a few minutes later. I'm like, who is that bridge troll? That is like... <laughs> Because one of the things that happens is that we're used to seeing a mirror image of ourselves on a regular basis because yes. you groom yourself every morning, but that's not what the rest of the world sees. So it can be really jarring to get used to that. So on uh -huh. Zoom, you can click a little box there that says mirror my image or unmirror my image. And I now always have it on not mirroring so that I okay. can like, oh, this is what other people see. And it's it's been a good adjustment for me. Yeah, I of course, there's like touch up appearance on Zoom, right? And it's nice to look at myself I in that way. And then I'll use like Microsoft Teams and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> They actually just added it. Get vocal when we had get vocal, and I was like, "Oh God, I need better I lighting know. in my office." I know. Get with it. But people. it's interesting. Teams got Teams added the function in the last yes. update, so now there's like you can adjust the lighting, and you can. I can't. They don't call it touch up because, of course, that would be probably trademarked yeah. by Zoom. But there is mm. a version there deep in the, in the controls. <laughs> Very funny. So as a result, the demand for plastic surgery increased dramatically. People were suddenly more aware of their appearance because they're having to look at themselves all day, right? Yep. And the flaws that they had previously ignored were now magnified on their computer <sighs> screens, sometimes with high definition cameras, because mm -hmm. there's a wide range of cameras that are built in. And, you know, the more recent models of computers have really, really good cameras. This led to a surge in virtual consultations and procedures as people sought to improve their appearance in this new wild west of video conferencing. So in a study that investigated the relationship between video calling and acceptance of aesthetic surgery, participants were asked to report on their video calling habits, including the applications and features that they used, as well as their attitudes towards aesthetic surgeries using the acceptance of cosmetic surgery scale, the ACSS. Okay. Who the hell knew that there is even such a measure? Like, that's amazing of to me, right? Of course there is. No, this is brilliant. I love this study already. I know. It's, it's actually interesting that's stuff smart. because the sample consisted of 295 participants with a mean age of 37.6 years and nearly equal gender distribution, which is really important to get. Video call users were found to have higher ACSS scores than non-users across all the applications surveyed, and they observed a moderate association between the time respondents spent looking at their own face on video calls oh and God. higher ACSS scores, <laughs> while time spent looking at another's face was not associated with a change in ACSS scores. So the more mm. you look at it, the more willing you are going to be to have a surgical yeah. procedure. So what I'm pulling oh from that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Wow. This is so funny. So this morning I was at one of our police stations and was talking with a female captain and she was telling me, I think she's going to be 59 or 60. She's been on the job a very long time. And she said that. And I said, okay, then what is your skincare routine? (laughs) And she's like this pretty, like no nonsense, you know, been in law enforcement forever, tough lady. And she broke out into this big smile and she's like, and this other woman was standing there. She's like, go ahead, captain, tell her your secret. (laughs) And I was like, I'm dying to know. (laughs) And it was drinking lots of water, of course. I'm telling you. I know. I was like, of course, of course, of course. And then she told me some of her products she uses, but I have to make a police captain's pay before I can start using those products probably. <laughs> oh, I know, man. Some of the stuff out there is is really expensive. That's why I just go for the Morpheus. I can't say enough about go. the Morpheus, but I don't know if I'm contributing to, to pathology, you know, <laughs> hawking for it in the middle of this episode. So I apologize. I I'll keep my, I'll keep She's these like, things I, separate. I do want to try Botox. I'm like, oh, you'll love it. And you don't need much yeah. of it, you'll love it. Here we yeah. are. In Everything of a in moderation episode. can just be really refreshing. You know, it's just like yeah. not necessarily in about looking younger, but just like looking more rested. Because I think as a collective society, we're just all freaking exhausted right now. No shit. So let's trick ourselves into being more rested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So let's get to our criminal case. Yes, we did find one. And huge thanks to our friend, Dr. Joni Johnston. For her video on this case, she has a video series that I have linked in the show notes. And really, this is the only one we could find explicitly linked to BDD. Review of this case, however, I just want to add this caveat, is not to insinuate that BDD causes violence. It's obviously an anomaly in that sense, but has many features of grievance holding and inappropriate coping that we do see in other cases and we've seen way too many times before. In 1988, Teresa Mary Ramirez, who suffered from BDD after surviving breast cancer, underwent breast augmentation surgery to remove her healthy breast tissue and then have implants inserted in order to have more symmetrical and more same size breasts. Now, over the next eight years, she had 12 more breast reconstructive surgeries as she never thought that they were done correctly and had what doctors claim were baseless complaints of pain and dissatisfaction with the previous surgeries. An interesting twist to this is that Teresa was a registered orthopedic nurse by trade and she had made a very comfortable life for herself in San Francisco. So in July of 1997, one of her previous doctors, Dr. Michael Tavis, arrived at his Petaluma, California clinic with his wife, who also worked there at the business. Dr. Tavis had performed Teresa's first three surgeries. Unfortunately, the first surgery had led to the formation of very painful scar tissue. And then after that was remedied, Teresa complained of the uneven size of her breasts and possible leakage. So that morning, Dr. Tavis and his wife were running late and they had called ahead to the office manager so that she could tell the first patient of the day that they would be in shortly. However, there was no answer at the office. And when they arrived, they saw the patient waiting outside the front door as if the doors were still locked. They went in the back entrance and smelled coffee brewing, but no indication of their office manager moving about. Dr. Tavis decided to go greet the patient as his wife, Deborah, made her way into the kitchen. She could overhear the conversation with the patient, which included the woman stating, I've seen 28 surgeons and her husband expressed empathy by responding, I'm sorry, I care. But she didn't get a chance to figure out what was going on until she heard gunshots. His wife then ran out the back door and called 911. Yeah, so Dr. Tavis was shot in the chest, but was able to turn and run down the hallway before being shot in the back again by his patient. And the patient was Teresa. And he collapsed 
near his office manager who had already been shot in the head, but was still alive. Dr. Tavis did end up dying from his injuries and his office manager survived, although wheelchair bound and brain damaged. Three Mm. days later, Teresa was found by first responders in a hotel room in San Francisco in a diabetic coma. And as the first responders were there sort of going through her belongings to see if she had medication with her, they found $5,000 in cash and a small notebook with what they called a hit list with a number of medical doctors names, including Michael Tavis. And this was seemingly Teresa's last ditch effort to get some sort of resolve or revenge for what she thought were botched surgery after botched surgery. But this wasn't really her first acting out behavior. You know, again, like we always say, nobody just snaps, right? So she had previously shown up unannounced to other doctor's offices, yelling at them, calling them butchers in front of other patients. On one occasion had exposed her breasts while she was in the lobby yelling at doctors. And in 1999, she was tried for Dr. Tavis's murder and the attempted murder of the office manager, Kay Carter. Her attorney entered two pleas for her, not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. He argued that Teresa actually had amnesia for the event, for the shooting, and suffered from a mental illness. You guessed it, he listed body dysmorphic disorder. However, the facts of the case really indicated that there was a lot of premeditation outweighed any of the defense's claims of having mental illness at the time or being insane at the time of the crime. And she was found guilty within nine hours by that jury. So Mm. this is a really sad case. I mean, you know, we talk about grievance collectors and, you know, folks, usually men who have this targeted violence behavior to them. And it's really interesting to see how this one overlaps with a very specific disorder that we've been talking about today. Yeah, this one kind of leaves me disturbed on a number of levels. I mean, I'm I'm so sorry that there was a loss of life. That's absolutely, absolutely tragic. And, you know, I think looking at it from a from the surface, it does seem incredibly excessive, the amount of surgeries that she underwent. Mm-hmm. But I also do want to point out that this is an ongoing phenomenon and discussion about how women are treated within the medical field. And yes. routinely, routinely, women's reports of pain are discounted by not only male, but also female doctors. Usually Mm -hmm. female doctors can be a little more understanding, but I've been horrified by some of the stories that I've seen on Reddit that women report, you know, that they have been reporting pain and all these symptoms for years and they keep getting, there was one, and this is another one too. And I think that the, the movement towards body acceptance and being, you know, you can be a bigger person and still be healthy. And even if, you're not, or there's some other permutation, it's none of my freaking business. You know, like, like sure. you are what you're choosing to do, what you choose to do, or how you choose to live your life and in, in what form. But I was really disturbed by seeing a report of a young woman who was overweight and had had chronic, horrific, horrific pain for years. And every doctor, the first thing they said was, well, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. Like, what does my weight have to do with this unbelievable pain I'm experiencing? So Mm. she doubles down and I don't remember, she doesn't give the details in the article about what happened, but she managed to lose, I think, 40 pounds and then went back to the doctor and the doctor runs some tests and she had like horrific fibroids, like that every other doctor had missed. And he was 
again, discounting her. And she said, I mean, apparently she confronted him and said, so what did my weight have to do with these fibroids? You know, it just, yeah. it's a terrible, yeah. terrible situation. So I'm not making excuses for Teresa by any means because poor Dr. Travis and, and his office assistant, you know, suffered the consequences of her BDD. But right. that I wouldn't say that that was BDD alone. That was a lot of other things going on as well because that unrelenting number of surgeries just that that leaves mm -hmm. me hanging thinking why didn't someone counsel her out of it or say we well, got to get into mental health and I don't know we didn't really get any information on the background to know if she had been mandated or strongly encouraged to go get therapy right. for this issue yeah well and is the stat that we quoted earlier most people look to surgery rather than mental health treatment. So yeah, I mean, she was, I don't know, not doctor shopping is not the right term, but you know, he had done three of her surgeries, but there are multiple doctors who had done the others. And I think that's really hard. It's, it's hard to have a system in place, even with health, you know, privacy to be able to say like, question if you're doctor number 13 or whatever, like why so many surgeries? And if she's convincing as to not being satisfied or having some issues, then I don't know. I mean, again, it's just a hard thing to catch. But you're yeah. right. Like this, this is a, a phenomenon of women not being believed, especially when their symptoms are a little bit more ambiguous, where we wouldn't even be having this conversation if this was a man who had perpetrated this crime with BDD, probably. There are many people, many women out there who experience this horrible level of care that don't go on to commit violence. So Yes, it's it's a perfect storm of these factors. I think the other area in which you and I have sort of, I don't know, felt like we've also dipped a toe into BDD is with the incel population. You know, yeah, we've, we've touched on that. You know, there's, there's no research to support this yet, even though I keep, <laughs> as we gear up for CrimeCon UK, I keep finding more academic research that's coming out regarding incels, which is wonderful. And I'm so happy it's coming out. And it's specifically, the majority of it is on their mental health issues. BDD has not been explored from what I can find yet. But I mean, we have observed, you know, I think anecdotally from the cases we've talked about some obsession with their own body image, right? Absolutely. And then living in that online community that is an echo chamber unto itself. And yeah. now the incel population is is not the only population that will reside within an echo chamber. I mean, there are women on plastic surgery subgroups and Reddit threads true, true. that will do absolutely the same thing. However, they don't have the grievance orientation towards large sections of the population that the incel population does. And we, we talked in our episode so many years ago that sort of, I feel like we were pioneers in talking about that <laughs> at the time because nobody was talking about it, is that many incels can focus on very strange things like the size of their wrists. Like, right. so there are wrist cells that like their, their wrists are too slender. I mean, it's interesting because the wrists are an indicator of you know, sort of there's a, a ratio that works throughout the body and mm -hmm. the size of your ankles and your wrists will indicate all these other things, but they get really focused on that. And then also, as we've used in our presentation, I really feel like there's an influence between influence. There's a direct correlation between the incel community and their experiences as gamers, where the computer generated images of men are hyper masculine and now right. becoming more hyper realistic. So they will even alter their own photos of like, well, this is what I look like with no jaw and no mm -hmm. chin. But if I insert it here, this is what I could look like. I could kind of ascend to that slayer level. Yeah. And not just altering photos. I mean, 
accounts of plastic surgery behind it too. Yes. Yeah. 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 When they can afford it. Although, you know, plastic surgery, yeah. especially the jaw surgery is very, very yes. expensive. So yeah. fascinating just, I, stuff. Yeah. I think of like that constant comparison, how it's, you know, kind of one of those hallmarks, maybe not total criteria for BDD, but just what we see and how they are so fixated on, you know, the body types, both of the men and the women, but then again, comparing yeah. themselves to the level of creating these caricatures really interesting stuff. It is. So, you know, just sort of like any pathology, it's not relegated to one small percentage of the population or demographic of the population. It can hit anybody. And certainly there are celebrities who have talked about their struggles with BDD. Andy Warhol in his autobiography revealed I'm going to quote here. I believe in low lights and trick mirrors. A person is <laughs> entitled to the lighting that they need. Couldn't agree more, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At one time, the way my nose looked really bothered me. It's always red. And I decided that I wanted to have it sanded. I went to the doctor and I think he thought he'd humor me. So he sanded it. And when I walked out of St. Luke's hospital, I was the same underneath, but I had a bandage on. If I didn't want to look so bad, I would want to look plain. That would be my next choice. Very mm. interesting that fixing yeah, the redness so was by fix. sanding. Yeah, interesting. And then Shirley Manson, she is the lead singer of the pop group Garbage. Totally adorable. You know, looks like this little fairy with big eyes and always had like red or pink hair. She said, quote, I always turned up five hours late because I'd be fussing about my hair and makeup. I would change into a million different outfits and make them change the lighting a million times. I would spend two hours crying in the toilet and whatever the result, I always thought I looked disgusting. I would look in the mirror every morning and be upset. I would get dressed and look in the mirror again and be upset. It could be anything. I could be too fat, too thin, too flat chested. My hands weren't long enough. My neck was too long. My tummy stuck out. My bum was too big. It was driving me crazy and I was wasting energy, precious energy that I should have been putting into my music or my family or friends. So that sums it up. I mean, that's like everything we've been talking about there. It's just a really good description from her. We have a couple of, you know, more recent examples. And then we have some more that are vintage. Before we get into our vintage episodes, I wanted to share from a very popular show that ran for a long time, Modern Family. One of the boyfriends on the show who played Dylan Marshall, his name is Reed Ewing, has come forward with his own facial body dysmorphia. And he had mm. numerous surgeries throughout the show, which is why they had to hide his changes in appearance with these bangs that were brushed forward over his face. He wrote a really lovely and very authentic narrative on Huffington Post about getting the implants removed and getting therapy and taking medication oh, to wow. address, his, address his body dysmorphia. So I was really glad to hear of a, a really good outcome of this guy who was like just a, you know, a wannabe actor. And then I, I would think, you know, I'm just going to surmise that a big part of it is suddenly being thrust in the spotlight and the way that he was sure. by becoming sort of a teen star. I think that really happened very quickly for him. But, you know, mm -hmm. for some vintage celebrity examples, actor, director, producer Orson Welles, who was known for many big movies back in the day, he was known to be obsessed with the size of his nose, fearing that it was much too small for his facial shape and his build. He almost exclusively wore nose prosthetics 
in his movie appearances. And then even during drunken dinner parties, he would pull out a selection of them for guests to try on. <laughs> so as he grew older and drank more heavily, he gained a great deal of weight and Wells's face size actually did grow, requiring bigger prosthetics. And in 2017, the Criterion Collection released a fascinating eight-minute documentary titled On the Nose. And that focuses on Orson Welles' love for fake noses. In most <laughs> of the films that I appear in, I put on a false nose, usually as large as I can. Wow. Wow, interesting. Yeah. 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 On the nose. What a great title. Love it. There's one last that I wanted to share, and that is because it's so related to our overall theme of L.A. Noir is actress Gloria Graham. She was known for playing Adu Annie in the movie version of Oklahoma, playing a bubbly, you know, sort of outgoing woman. But what her real bread and butter was during the 40s and 50s was playing a femme fatale or a mob mall or a mob girlfriend. She was part of the studio system in the golden edge of Hollywood. And the studio system, of course, could be incredibly cruel. And under the demeaning and cruel influence of Louis B. Mayer, Graham began to feel increasingly insecure about her appearance, particularly when compared to the seemingly perfect younger starlets she worked alongside. She became fixated on her upper lip and she believed it to be too thin and marked with horrifically unsightly ridges, which is not true. Aww. In an effort to compensate for this flaw, she started resorting to an inventive solution, although she did not have money for surgery, and I don't even know if there would have been a lip surgery at that time. She began stuffing cotton in her mouth during filming, trying to give her lips a more plump, kind of peculiar appearance, and you can actually see it in several of her later movies. And unfortunately... <laughs> This decision had some really mortifying consequences because during steamy kissing scenes, the cotton wadding would fall out of her mouth, which is really to the disgust of her co-stars. Wow. And so we did a watch party of In a Lonely Place, and she was in yes. that with Humphrey Bogart. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful woman. Wow. Well, for a couple of entertainment references, just movies, there's a film from 2013 called Likeness, and it stars Elle Fanning. And it's a short movie about a teenager with a crippling case of body dysmorphic disorder. I have not seen it. It looks really good, has really good reviews, and I'm sure with Elle Fanning in it, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. And then there's a really sweet Disney animated short that if you have Disney plus you can go on and there's, you know, they have their little collections of shorts, but it's just from last year, 2022. It's called reflect. It came up when I was searching BDD. I would say it's more just about body image and the creator of the storyline talks a little bit about her creative process of writing the story, but it's a, a ballerina, a girl who's, overweight by ballerina standards, which doesn't have to be much, but it, it's kind of her journey. And, you know, being a ballerina practicing at the bar, all you're doing is looking at yourself in the mirror. So, oh, yeah. but it's, it's very sweet, very cute little animated short from Disney. So not Disney, but that's all folks, what we have for you today. <laughs> <laughs> Warner even, Brothers of you. I know. I don't even think we have any end housekeeping. We kind of did everything at the top today. I don't know. You got anything? You did a recent live stream. That'll be up. I did. We just had a wonderful live stream. You were not able to attend because you're Johnny on the spot for so many different <laughs> events and emergencies here in LA. But we had the lovely Miss Tammy from Holly Weird Paranormal yes. who jumped in and we riffed on the Lori Vallow case and a recent Excellent. book that's been published about that crime. And it's currently being adjudicated and it's fascinating yeah. and terrifying stuff, really. 
Yeah, the trial is underway as we speak. Well, thanks for having me here for your episode. I didn't get replaced by Tammy, although she could probably do a good job anytime. Nobody could replace <laughs> you. No one could replace you. Aww, I miss you, Dr. Scott. Okay, well, everyone, with that, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Take care, guys. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not dash so dash confidential.com you can find us on instagram at la not so podcast on twitter at la not so pod and on facebook at la not so confidential media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienist entertainment at gmail.com please join us each month on saturdays at 4 p.m pacific standard time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on youtube entitled behind the couch Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. <laughs>